Hello, everybody. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And we're the Old Dogs. We're a couple of boomers in our 70s that want to grow bolder, not older. We'll share with you the ways we howl at the moon, the fascinating old dogs we meet, and the new tricks that we learn. Our goal is to rethink that phrase, act your age. As the old philosopher Bob Dylan once said, those not busy being born are busy dying. So if you've got 20 minutes or so to kill, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In today's podcast, we take a look at what a cashless future is going to be like using your cell phone. We celebrate Jimmy Carter turning 93. We look at a pig who's doing some serious pet therapy at senior housing. A judge that kind of flipped out after losing his election. And some great tips about staying comfortable while traveling by air. And in our Old Dogs interview, we're going to talk to Dr. Michael Lieberman, a man who distinguished himself as a hospital administrator and is pursuing a second career as a poet and author. Say, Jim, what's on your mind today? Well, um, you know, I was noticing the other day when I was having lunch, and I went to pay for it, and at the counter, I pulled out my wallet and uh, to pay with cash, and like I used to do. And there was this little gadget on the counter that lets you pay with your phone. And I thought, wow, I am seeing that a lot these days. Have you noticed that, paying with your phone? Not only paying with your phone, but uh, I noticed when I'm boarding an airline, yeah. maybe two-thirds of the passengers have their boarding pass on their phone. Right. Right, uh, yeah. Not me. No. <laughs> no. I'm, I'm holding out for that. And I'll tell you what concerns me, Jim, is are we becoming too dependent on this piece of electronics called a smartphone? I don't know. Well, it's a legitimate question. But, you know, we took some time to get used to credit cards and paying with a credit card instead of with cash or writing a check. And I can't tell you the last time I wrote a check in a place of business. Yeah, same here. I I will very rarely do a check for something that I want a record of, um, you know, like a charitable donation. But mm-hmm. I pay my bills online. But it's still the idea of this phone becoming so central to your life. What happens if you lose it, or what happens if you break it? You know, and people do. Yeah. Well, you know, we've got uh, we've got an interesting piece in the podcast today. Yes, we do. About this movement towards a cashless society. Mm-hmm. And well, I can already tell you, I'm part of the cashless society. Are you? Well, I'm part of the tasteless society. <laughs> uh, maybe we'll we'll mesh someday. But what's interesting is, you know, in looking up that article, I found that there are actually some cities in China that are totally cashless, including airline tickets, including uh, you know bus transportation. Everything is handled through their smartphone. We're not there yet, but uh, I don't know. Do you see it coming? I can't imagine an entire economy that runs without paying cash. Yeah. Uh, It's pretty hard to imagine. But, yeah, uh, certainly if it can be conceived, it probably will be achieved. Well, you know, you have to acknowledge that transition is happening now. And quite possibly in the near future – We're going to look at cash and credit cards as old-fashioned as writing a check. So if that's the case, the preferred form of commerce will be mobile payments with our smartphones. This information is supplied by T. Rowe Price and appeared in the Washington Post for November 11, 2018. Now, key to this trend is something called a mobile wallet. 
Now, this is an app that you download to your smartphone that stores credit or debit card info that allows your phone to make purchases. Mm -hmm. Now, mobile wallets offer greater security since every single transaction is heavily encrypted. Now, the key players are Apple Pay, Google Pay, and Samsung Pay. Right. Well, experts predict over 2 billion people will use mobile wallets to make payments in 2019. That's a lot of people. The push towards mobile payments in this country is being shaped by younger generations that don't remember a time before smartphones. Almost 70% of Gen Zers use mobile banking apps daily. In case uh, you're wondering out there, Generation Z is the group born between 1995 and 2010. Okay. Our grandkids. Yeah. Well, I guess it's a natural progression, Jim. And, And right now, I get my Social Security deposit electronically. I pay most of my bills online with bill pay. I move money between various accounts with a mouse click. I order Starbucks by phone that's charged to my Starbucks account. I guess it's just one more thing that my grandkids will have to teach me. Paul, I'm going to guess there's a lot of things your grandchildren are going to have to teach you. You know, Jim, from time to time, I think it's a good idea to celebrate people our age or older who have had some great accomplishments. And I wanted to do a shout-out for former President Jimmy Carter. Good idea. Who is 93 mm-hmm. and still wielding a hammer for Habitat for Humanity, which he's done now for 35 years. Now, say what you will about his one-term presidency, I would still vote for him as the best ex-president we've ever had. No doubt, no doubt. He's resisted any attempts at cashing in on his presidency. He and his wife, Rosalind, still live in the two-bedroom house they occupied before he became president. And his simple life is in stark contrast to other occupants of the White House who have collected enormous speaking fees from corporate America. Jimmy Carter, still getting it done at age 93. Pet therapy is a growing field that uses animals to help people better cope with health problems or mental health issues. Of course, the pet of choice is usually a dog or a cat, but what about a pig? This item comes from the Houston Chronicle, dated October 29, 2018. There's a pig named Max, who is a regular visitor to Parkway Place, a senior complex in Houston. Now, Max is a pint-sized version of the pigs you find on a farm. He's not one of those enormous porkers. He's an American mini pig, a breed that was developed for the sole purpose of being raised as pets. His owner wanted to provide pet therapy for seniors, and she chose a mini pig rather than a more conventional choice. Max is only about 15 inches long and is pulled around in a small wagon. He's been through obedience training, in case you're concerned, and he can sit, stay, and spin. Perhaps he's overeducated, because all he has to do to please senior residents is, well, act like a pig. What do you think of that, Paul? Well, it sounds to me like they're putting lipstick on a pig. No, I think they're just bringing home the bacon. Oh. Say, Jim, have you ever wanted to make a grand exit after being fired? Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen to this. A juvenile court judge made a jaw-dropping exit after losing a recent election. What'd he do? His story appeared in the Houston Chronicle on November 7th, 2018. Oh, yes. Now, this judge had a reputation as being tough on juvenile offenders. 
The candidate who beat him seemed to have a more lenient stand on juvenile crime. Yep. So the response of the current judge the day after the election was to release nearly all the youthful offenders that appeared before him. <laughs> all he asked them was whether they planned to kill anyone. <laughs> and if they said no, they were released. One public defender commented, he was releasing everybody. Apparently, he was saying that's what the voters wanted. <laughs> well, the judge offered no comment, but he certainly got his grand exit. One hopes that his replacement has better judgment, wouldn't you say? I would say that I certainly want to ask more questions than <laughs> just the one. Today's Old Dogs podcast interview is with Dr. Michael Lieberman, MD, PhD. Among many other things, Mike founded Houston's Baylor Cancer Center. He was the founding director of Houston Methodist Hospital Research Institute and the founding chair of the Department of Pathology at Houston Methodist. What makes Mike a bit unique, though, is that he is also an award-winning poet and writer of fiction. Mike, welcome to the Old Dogs podcast. Okay. Say, Mike, uh, what we are looking for in our interviews, and, and you eminently qualify, we'll see how it turns out. <laughs> uh, so what you want is not maybe what you're going to get. But, you know, <laughs> just... but we are looking for people that are still actively engaged with life. And in your case, what's fascinating is a radical change of careers. Uh, to the average person, you uh, went from a left brain activity to a right brain activity. Uh, and so, I'm certainly glad I got credit for a brain. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's not as radical a transition as it sounds. I started out, I was a very good science student. I was also the poetry editor of our literary magazine. I wrote features for the newspaper, the school newspaper. And so I always had this preoccupation, nascent gift, etc. But it really went into... Uh, seclusion for many, many years because mm. I pursued a career in in medicine and science. You know, we all grew up kind of in the same age. In the back of your mind, were you thinking, well, writing would be nice, but I need to have a career? Yeah, so it's interesting. I went to college thinking I would major either in literature and become a poet or in chemistry and become a physician. And honestly, I came from a lower middle class family that worked hard to be middle middle class and beyond and I couldn't figure out at the age of 19 on the world I was going to make a living as a poet and I knew that I had to make a living I mean there was I knew I had to rely only on myself and I guess I really didn't have the courage to go out on my own as a poet on the other hand I was very engaged in science even young I mean I was a Lepidopterist, a serious one, and I had accumulated something like 1,700 specimens by the time I was 15 or so, 16. I lived in both worlds. I could figure out how I was going to make one work, but I couldn't figure out how I was going to make the other work. Well, and now you're figuring that out, obviously, because you are uh, an awarded poet. You uh, have received several prizes, including the uh, Southern and Southwestern Breakthrough Prize for a first book of poetry. You've received the Texas Review Poetry Prize, the Penn Texas Fiction Award. That's pretty impressive for a guy who originally didn't want to take that path. Yeah, but it depends on who the competition is. Uh, for instance, think about Chekhov. I mean, Chekhov wrote some of the greatest short stories of the 19th century, and 
he was a physician. I mean, William Carlos Williams was an active uh, pediatrician and general practitioner, wrote some of the great American poetry of the 20th century. So I'm playing slow-pitch softball compared to them. So let's talk about this transition. Did you fall asleep one day as a doctor and wake up as a writer? I think I should explain one thing. So I retired at 69 from academic medicine. But I had been nursing a novel for a number of years before that. Mm -hmm. And this was a novel, an attempted catharsis, to deal with the breakup between Baylor College of Medicine and the Methodist Hospital, Uh which were my two home institutions. I was chairman of pathology at Baylor and chief of the service at Methodist. Anyway, it ultimately got completely rewritten and became my first novel, which came out in, I think, 2012, Never Surrender, Never Retreat, uh, A History of Medical Politics in Texas, or something like that. So that got finished after I retired from medicine, had a chance to do it. So, And then I just moved forward writing novels and poems uh, without any program. I mean, my program is to sit in a room and wait for something to happen. Sounds like you're working on a romance novel. Is that true? Uh, no. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> but uh, no. But I am writing about the German romantics. Well, Michael, so, that, that raises up something that I'm very curious about. Uh, you say you sit in a room by yourself and things come to you. Sitting in a room by yourself is far different from the life you led up until age 69. You were surrounded by people. How have you managed the transition from a very populated day to a very um, solitary day? That's a good point. Actually, in my career as an academic physician, I led two separate lives. Uh, Leader slash administrator slash chair and research scientist. So I shuttled back and forth between an active lab uh, of, say, 10 to 12 people uh, doing science with me and a department that at times had 100 uh, professionals, MDs and PhDs in it. Um, And it seemed to work pretty well. Um, In that first role as a scientist, I used to do a lot of deep thinking. I used to sit and try to think things through I used to sit in small groups and talk with uh, my research associates, my postdocs, my graduate students about what to do and how to do it. So there was a very contemplative part uh, that always went along with that. And frankly, uh, I'm a deep introvert, and I was glad to shed the leadership roles that I had. And that experience, while it was working against my strength, living in the extroverted world, I was a really good one. I learned a lot about people who were nothing like me, about how a whole lot of other people thought about things and did things uh, that were completely foreign to the contemplative scientist and sometime poet uh, novelist. Mm-hmm. Well, that's got to have provided you with a lot of great material for your writing. Well, it did. I could not have really written Never Surrender, Never Retreat as well as I did without living in the administrative world of a large hospital. Well, given that you are always going to be writing, what is next for you? Do you have any wild ideas for what may come next? Yeah, I've been suppressing another novel 
about 2,000 words of which I've written. It's demanding to be written. It's radically different than anything I've ever written. But uh, one of the things they teach you in research and that I was very strict on with my graduate students is that 100% of one finished paper is a lot more valuable than 10% of 10 unfinished papers. So I've got to listen to my inner voice, but I have to balance it with the emotional pragmatism of finishing what I start. But you can only do so much. And I can't live, it's hard to live on two emotional channels at once. It's not hard to read two books at once. It's hard to write two books at once. Mm. Or at least it is for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess the other thing that's worth saying is that, uh, you know, I say that I sit in the room and wait for things to come to me. But of course, one's influenced by the outside world, whether it's politics, the elections, what one's reading, uh, what music one's listening to, uh, what one's aging body is telling you, and so on. So reading for me is a source of ideas and a source of imagination. My approach to what I read is very much like my approach to what I write. I don't actively seek things out. They sort of come to me. I, my wife suggests a book. I read something in the New Yorker, the New York Review of Books. I hear something at the gym. A friend recommends a book. And um, it's a lot more efficient because I find almost everything I read is worthwhile. So, I mean, the process, it's really hit or miss. I just let the world come to me, and so far it's worked pretty well. One last thing, Michael. Are you ever going to get back to collecting butterflies? Um, no, I have plenty in my stomach as I approach new projects. <laughs> well, it looks like we made it through another podcast. As you probably noticed, we need help. Mm-hmm. So please share what's on your mind. Head to our website, www.olddogspodcast.com. We'd love to hear how you howl at the moon. 